Welcome to the Shelf Builders Podcast, the show where we get to know authors by talking about their bookshelves. I'm Dustin Porta. I'm here with Devin Erickson, author of Theft of Fire, the first book in the Orbital Space series. Devin, thanks for joining me. Uh, Before we talk about your bookshelf, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit more about what you write? Well, I write uh, hard science fiction, sort of a love letter to all of the classics that I uh, used to hide in the back of public libraries with big piles of. Um, And I I throw in a little modern stuff, a little more character development, but basically fun adventure stories in the spirit of classic science fiction. And your book launch is coming up very soon. When should we look Uh, for it? Yes, my first one. Uh, I'm sorry, what was your question again? Oh, well, what's the date? Uh, November 11th. And if you're watching this in the future, that is November 11th, 2023. All right. I'll get your uh, website at the end of the show, and I'm going to have links down at the bottom in the show notes for anyone who wants to go check it out. Uh, Speaking of libraries, I see what looks like a pretty impressive library behind you. I was hoping you could take us on a little tour of your bookshelf. Ah, well, we just bought a house, so it's still being unpacked, but there are a few things here. First of all, it's important to note there's two bookshelves. This is the main bookshelf. I am a big ebook fan, but uh, here we have- Appreciate you bringing that out because that's a question that usually comes up partway through, and some people are unprepared to talk about their ebook shelf. Oh yes, oh yes, I, I can definitely, uh, I can definitely inventory for you. This is this is the daily reader, and these are very popular with those of us who are not getting any younger, and our eyes are not what they used to be. But I do still have a few physical books which are those sort of rare classics that were a little bit more of cult appeal and never made it into uh, ebooks in the modern form. So over here we have some Walter John Williams. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I'm not familiar with Walter John Williams. Ah, Walter John Williams is one of those people who as a science fiction writer, definitely should have been an A-lister, but he never quite got the audience he deserved, probably because he he's so multi-talented and so interested in so many different things that he often didn't really st- pick a genre and stick to it. For example over here. Should I be showing you these books or just talking about them? Oh, it doesn't really matter. I think talk us through it because half the viewers are going to be uh, listening. But if you have a really cool cover, grab it, hold it up to the screen. I'll describe it. We'll just verbalize most of the tour then. Um, For example, he wrote Hardwired and Voice of the Whirlwind to cyberpunk near future science fiction classics. And then he switched over and wrote a three-volume series called Ten Points for Style, which is a light science fiction comedy about a professional burglar. 
And then he wrote historical fiction and he wrote Westerns. And I believe he wrote some Star Wars novels. And then there mm. was an urban fantasy series, Metropolitan and City on Fire, which he never finished. So Walter John Williams was someone who jumped around so much that he never really built this sort of reliable, repeat, Larry Correa-style audience. But if you haven't heard of him, he's definitely worth a read, uh, regardless of what genre you like, because whichever one you like, he's probably written something in it. I think a lot of the authors I've had on could find that very relatable. Yes, yes. <laughs> Wanting it, to jump it's around. A, it's a struggle between one's own creativity and wanting to be consistent for an audience. You know, you, you become known to people who like a certain type of thing. And at the same time, you don't want to write the same book 27 times, which some authors, naming no names, have done. And you don't also want to jump around so much that the people who loved your first book aren't really interested in your second. So it's a balancing act. And it's not just about genre. It's about developing a consistent style. People who, who loved your previous work are able to, to trust you that they're going to be able to enjoy your next thing. Because, you know, $20 for a book, $10 for an ebook is not really a big ask. What what we really ask for people's trust in is that we are giving is that we're taking you know 20 30 hours of their time it really is uh a lot of time that our readers give to us we're asking yeah. a lot for them to sit down and spend days weeks of their life with yeah. our stories yeah yeah <laughs> and of course the the flip side of that the payoff is because you're writing a book and, you know, writing a book takes, you know, one to two man years sort of considering all of the other things you have to do to bring a book to publication, which is quite a bit. That may sound like a lot, but compared to your standard movie or TV show or, you know, even, even sort of the radio plays of the 1930s and 40s, that's a very small investment of time and effort. So compared to your other media, books are really quite cheap to produce. And this allows us to be very creative and experimental because we're not, I mean, authors take great personal risk, but we are not answerable to $200 million of investment in filming this project. So we don't have to justify every creative decision to a committee. We can just go ahead and do it. And even if you can't get publishers to see the value in it, you know, ever since Andy Weir became a household name, um, self-publishing is no longer the vanity press for people who don't deserve to be taken seriously it's it's very much a real way of going about things and there are pros and cons to each 
but being an author, you, you really do have a lot of creative freedom nowadays. And that allows you to create some really interesting things for readers to experience. So long as you get over this hurdle of convincing them that it's worth their time to crack the book in the first place. I think that's a healthy attitude to have. And what with uh, authors not having to go through some of the uh, gatekeepers mm -hmm. to do it, uh -huh. um, it takes a bit of humility to say something like uh, about the fact that it's yeah. Yeah. a cheaper option. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's and, actually... and don't get me wrong, gatekeepers, when they're functioning right, serve a very valuable function for readers because back in the say the golden era of science fiction publishing if you want to say the 30s 40s or you know even the 50s 60s 70s um the fact that someone was published by this sort of manhattan-based publishing industry served as kind of a stamp of approval where you could be certain of some sort of minimum quality of writing if you were going to pick up one of their books and crack it open and start reading it wouldn't necessarily be to your taste but it wouldn't be badly written product mm -hmm. and i think the the publishing industry today is maybe interested in some other things rather than just pure gatekeeping for writing quality so from the reader's viewpoint this this can create a, a bit of a hazard out there because you you know you pick up this book and it's self-published or it's published by one of these publishing houses and you're not necessarily getting something that's going to be an enjoyable experience even if the genre is to your taste so i think nowadays readers are cautious and justifiably so and it is our job not only to make the experience of opening our books rewarding but to find ways to give them confidence that it will be and that's about how we describe the book how we market the book how we curate our cover art to accurately give an impression of what the experience is going to be like. And that is all part of the job. We don't just get to sit in our office and write and then throw this bundle of typewritten pages <laughs> over the wall and say, oh, my little minions will handle it. No, no, you have to, you have to be a storyteller. And that means you have to engage with your audience you have to treat them with respect and you have to communicate to them clearly what it is that you are doing. That is part of the reason why I started doing this series of interviews is um, to get some self-published authors on mm -hmm. uh, and get their, get their opinions and to get people thinking about books as a, as a physical medium, what they'll look uh, like in people's uh, households yeah uh, how they stand up next to other things on the bookshelf yeah. 
Um, and we do sometimes get into talking about uh, printing quality and Ooh. other reader experience, quality of life things that includes ebook formatting. And, uh, yes. and before we go back to your bookshelf, uh, I don't want to forget about your ebooks. Can you show us that tablet? Can you describe the physicality of it a little bit and why you choose that one in particular and what really works for you? Because I'm particular about my e-readers. Uh-huh. Well, this is a Kobo. I, uh, I have forgotten exactly which model, but it's the narrow one. Is it a and newer model or an older model? I've had it for about uh, four or five years, I think. So they probably have a more recent model that is somewhat equivalent. But I selected this for a couple of reasons. First of all, that it's not tied into any particular market ecosystem. I can just load books onto it as if it were a hard drive. And I, I value that freedom. I don't like being tied to one distributor, either as a reader yes. or as a writer. Yes, and, I'm a big fan of Kobo. Uh, we've mentioned yeah. them on here before. Yeah. And it's very slim looking as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's designed to be very slim and durable. And uh, that is that is important because I am basically a shaved gorilla and I tend to break everything I work with if I have it long enough. And uh, especially since I read in bed, I fall asleep reading, I roll over on this thing and it has held up so far. There's a few dings What's and scratches the... and whatnot, but. Uh, what is the e-ink like? Is it color or uh, black and white? It is black and white. I, I don't know if color e-ink is much of a thing so far. That wasn't my field as an engineer. I don't but, think it is. Um, you either have the 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 screen like a tablet screen, yeah, or you have the yeah. e ink. Yeah, the e ink is nice because it's non-emissive, and then you can have it with a backlight. And I very much like the backlight. And I'm I'm not a big fan of this sort of uh, white on black. Um, sort of computer text or glowing screens and so forth. I find that it's much easier on the eyes to have dark text on a light emissive background. Because if you think about it, that's how the human eye evolved. You know, we evolved on the African savanna, trying to spot vertical dark figures against a light <laughs> background. And so, lo and behold, when you get this e-ink display, you have dark letters against this sort of backlit light background. It's, it's very easy on the eyes, which becomes important for those of us who are not getting any younger. No one's ever compared reading. I've never heard anyone compare reading to hunting on the savanna, but I like it. <laughs> uh, I, let me ask you yes. how, uh, I know you're not set up yet. I know you're only unpacking, but in uh, when everything's ideal, how do you organize your bookshelves? How do I organize my bookshelf? Well, again, I am an ebook reader, so we have to 
we have to take this whole thing with that grain of salt. But generally, well, then I have I a follow-up question. Yeah, generally, I have particular favorite authors that I will simply devour. I am a very picky reader. So generally, my bookshelf will consist of everything by a very small set of authors. And so I can just, okay, here's, you know, this entire shelf, the third one there of Terry Pratchett. You know, that's... That's, mass That's what I'm reading right now of everything he ever wrote. And typically there will be few enough authors that I don't really have to alphabetize or anything like that. I can just see here is the Pratchett shelf, you know, over here is some George Martin with some space left for if he ever finishes, which I am not hopeful <laughs> for at this stage. Um, and then over here is some Walter John Williams, some William Gibson, you know, some Larry Niven. Actually, I don't have any physical copies of Niven because Niven is in ebooks for everything he ever wrote, which is a big plus. So do you make a decision? I like this author enough that I want to have all of his works and that's how you decide I'm going to go out and purchase these paperbacks? Uh no, not really. I, I tend to buy the ebooks and I will buy hard copy books if I can't find an ebook version of something I really loved as a child. You know, so this is this is almost like the backup mm. bookshelf. Okay. You know, again, it's the reassuring real bookshelf to me. is here. It's reassuring to me when I meet someone who is um has a good relationship with their Kindle because I struggle or not Kindle mm -hmm. e-reader device because yeah. I struggle with my Kindle, which I don't really mm -hmm. care for. And I've been mm -hmm. thinking about going back to uh, Kobo uh, uh -huh. for a better reading experience. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's really just a matter of taste. You know, some people like eBooks. Some people are very enthralled with, the physicality of books, having the nice cover and the feel of the paper. And we authors love those people because they buy leather bound editions. Mm -hmm. Leather bound editions are our way of saying, okay, here's a little thank you for being an extra enthusiastic supporter. I believe People who do um, video games with in-app in purchases call these people whales. But <laughs> what they really are is they're people who are patrons of the arts, you know, really. They're enthusiastic supporters and they will, they will buy whatever you're selling, not because they would just want any crap, but because they really, they really want to be able to support you in what you're doing and make sure you can continue it. And reaching those people is, is very important for being able to support yourself as a writer. You know, Brandon Sanderson is a master of this. If you go on his website, oh, he's, he has he's really demonstrated it yeah, uh, in the last has, couple of years yeah. in particular. Yeah, he has all sorts of little bits of swag. And people love this stuff because they they not only get something that's that's a nice memento for them, 
but also they get something that they they get this feeling that they're that they're able to support and sort of vote for something that really made them feel something and they're really enthusiastic about that'll bring us back to the tour you can continue the tour on the nonfiction side we have uh somewhere over here washington's crossing and paul revere's ride and these are two books by a historian named david hackett fisher um and they read like novels they're they're two stories of the revolutionary war which really captures his his focus is not only on capturing events as they happened but what the sort of social ground truth of the time is like so those those are a very interesting window into the into some of the motivations and mindset and attitudes behind the Revolutionary War. And since I am now writing a frontier society in extraterrestrial solar space, I wanted to I wanted to get into that sort of frontier mindset of you know, we're creating a new economic and political structure and we're we're living in this place where we're more isolated from the the uh, institutions that have shaped our society. So what are we going to do with ourselves? How are we you going beat, to organize ourselves? It, you beat me to my follow up question, which would oh. be how does that, uh, you know, influence your writing? So how about instead of that question? Can you yeah. list some other uh, uh, nonfiction or, or historical books or reference books that uh, influenced your writing or you keep around for reference or inspiration? Well, um, not so much with the books, but I am I am very, very a lot of a lot of my stuff comes from research into the hard science fiction. Now, I actually was the son of one of the programmers on the Voyager spacecraft. So I really? grew up as this sort of JPL brat hanging around at all the Voyager press conferences and seeing these pictures of other planets. That's come amazing. Up. As, you know, as they were being received from the spacecraft. So. I was not the only first person to see them, but I wow. saw them as fast as the actual JPL staff did. What age were you? Uh, that would have been, well, the, the, the Voyager spacecraft were doing planetary flybys for quite some time. So that would have all been all the way between the ages of about six up to about, I'd have to check my timeline, but maybe 14, 15. And, you know, we had all these photographs of, of the other planets hanging in our home like other people have art. So as I grew up, I was always imagining. And I, it never occurred for me to, to me for a moment to doubt that someday we were going to go out there. And then someday we were going to live out. So that's what I wrote about. What is that society going to look like? How, how is that going to feel? What is the experience going to be of people who not only 
live off Earth, but are second and third and fourth generation and didn't come from Earth. You know, what is that lifestyle going to be like? So I'm very indebted to a lot of um, people who work for NASA, people who work for JPL, people who are just these wonderful physics professors and hobbyists who will just post endless swaths of detailed information about spaceflight on the internet. There's a YouTube channel, The Everyday Astronaut. And if you're the at everyday all astronaut. in rocketry, I, I highly recommend it. Before we run out of time here, I wanted to ask, is there a, I don't mean to rip us away from uh, nonfiction, but is there mm -hmm. any fiction authors that you uh, in particular strive to emulate when you're writing your own stuff that you uh, particularly you like their voice or the way they mm -hmm. tell a story? Mm -hmm. Well, as I said, Theft of Fire is a love letter to all of these science fiction classics. So... I'm not trying to emulate any particular author's voice because a voice is something you don't really strive for. It happens. It's something that happens to you because right. your authorial voice is the things you can't avoid doing. And I think mine is rather unique, but at the same time, I was inspired by lots of different science fiction authors. So if you read theft of fire, very carefully. And if you are a science fiction fan, especially a classic science fiction fan, you're going to find little Easter eggs hidden throughout the text that are just little shout outs to different authors that inspired me. Not all science fiction, but mostly. And they're just these, these little hidden details that don't disrupt the story too much. But, uh, some people who like, say, Larry Niven or Walter John Williams or William Gibson will say, aha, I see what you did there. And th these are just the little tributes to the people who inspired me. One of my favorite things about doing this show is that it helps me build my uh, reading list. Because I have to admit, I'm not uh, very widely read in or deeply read in uh, science fiction. Mm -hmm. I read... Mm -hmm. A lot of Arthur C. Clarke and uh -huh. not much else. That was a good one growing yes. up, but uh, yeah. I, I didn't. I didn't read any Larry Niven. Yes, uh -huh. then this is this is me physically restraining myself from <laughs> lunging towards the camera with a list of recommendations. <laughs> that is what the show is about. Okay. So okay, well, okay. I would I would <laughs> definitely pick up Larry Niven's Ring World. Um, I would look at some of the new wave science fiction, um, some Zelazny, some Le Guin. Um, if you've read some of William Gibson's earlier works, um, Neuromancer, um, oh. Count Zero, Mona Lisa Overdrive, those are very good they kind of do for computer science what the Arthur C. Clarks did for rocket science. So 
Those hmm. are very much worth your time. They explore some of the possibilities of artificial intelligence and, uh, you know, electronic communications and, and how our relationship with information changes us. So those are well worth a read. Let's see what else. Um, Asimov. Asimov is sometimes a little silly, but some mm -hmm. of the more serious stuff. The Foundation series, I would recommend. Um, I would not recommend watching the show to see if you would like the books because these have become two completely different animals. And, As is uh, usually the case. Yeah, it's, it's not the sort of series of books that lends itself to, to uh, becoming a television series. So I don't, I don't really understand the reasoning behind that choice in the first place. But the Foundations series itself is is very deep and thoughtful and at the same time very accessible. So I would definitely any... recommend. Uh, and of course, you know, there's lots and lots of Heinlein and, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to necessarily devour everything he wrote unless you're a hardcore Heinlein fan, but but some of his more well-known works, you know, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress and so forth, are definitely worth your time. I was wondering, uh, this is a harder one. Uh, yeah. I don't always ask people to do this, especially okay. on the spot, but um, sometimes people will are willing to humor me and pick a book off of their shelf and give me an impromptu review and or uh, a summary of the book, uh, talking, talking me through the story and telling me what it is I will like about it. Uh, sometimes it goes way off the rails. Does anything jump to mind? That... Ah, yes, here we go. Excellent. So this is Metropolitan by Walter John Williams. Metropolitan by Walter. Will you show us the cover of that? Um, unfortunately, I no longer oh. have the dust cover. So. Oh, but it's a cloth bound. Black hard is cover. very nice. <laughs> um, but this is an urban fantasy set in a far future Earth, which has been cut off from the rest of the solar system by some sort of mysterious shell over the sky. And I'm sold already. <laughs> the, the, the urbanization of the world has grown to the extent that there is one vast city covering the planet and even floating in some places on the ocean. And there's, there's a very interesting take on magic thrown in there. And there's a very interesting future history that presents just the littlest tantalizing hints of how it connects to the modern era. And the story starts with a very ambitious woman who's who's sort of trying to claw her way out of poverty in this 
very vast and indifferent world. And she makes a discovery of a very unusual and special resource and finds some interesting things to do with it. So I shan't spoil the surprise, but <laughs> the joy of it is really the setting. Joy but, of it is uh, the setting. Walter John That's Williams how... is very definitely an underappreciated master of his craft. So if you like sort of urban fantasy of a little more unusual twist that doesn't really draw from Tolkien at all. Like if hmm. you enjoyed uh, Michael Swanwick's Iron Dragon's Daughter, then I would very much recommend picking up Metropolitan and City on Fire. And then cursing my name because it's been many years and he hasn't come out with the third one yet. And I got you hooked on something that didn't get finished. <laughs> Is it, a, it's not a new book either, right? No, it's, it's uh, not. It's been it's out not. a while. Apparently, I don't know all the details, but apparently there was some kerfuffle with the publisher going under mm. and intellectual property rights. And so he couldn't write the third one. But I understand, and don't quote me on this because, because I may be wrong, but I think he has the rights back now, and so a third one may be coming. He could have and, written it no. and put it into yeah. a safe. Yeah. Yeah. I, was in, uh, I was in a Salvador Dali museum in Florida, uh -huh. and there was a Picasso on the wall, but it was a Picasso woodcut in sort of Salvador Dali style, but it had the Picasso's... Uh, characters yes i said I, i'm, I said, I'm sorry to, to interrupt you but is yeah. that what i think it is <laughs> okay give 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 okay so is this, this something exciting for yeah. the this right. is the actual first proof of my first novel <laughs> which is being public which is going live november 11th <laughs> So this is actually the first time I get to see this. Well, if so we can... would you like to do this live? Absolutely. It's not going to be live, but we'll do it on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Let's uh, see if I can get this open here. Oh, wow. Okay. There we go. This cover hasn't been revealed yet either. It has not. It has not. This is the first time it has gone live. So we can time the release of this show to your cover reveal. Uh, hold it up to the camera so we can see it, if you don't mind. Oh, wow. Yes, my cover artist, Thea McGraw. That looks fantastic. Genius. Beautiful. Yes. Wow. Let's see the spine, because that's, you know, how it's going to be on a shelf, which is. Yes. Halloween. Yes. Wow. Oh, I'm not patronizing you. That is a beautiful cover. Thank you. But this is, <laughs> yeah, this is actually the first time I am holding in my hands a book, a physical copy of a book that I wrote. So it's a great moment. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to be here to see this. It's, it's and I have never fun. seen a first time published, uh, self-published author who has a better looking cover. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I will, I will pass your comments along to Thea <laughs> and I sincerely hope 
that this woman becomes as famous as like the next Michael Wellen because she deserves it. She absolutely reached into my head and pulled my characters out. And I don't know how she did it. And she is such a joy to work with. So if there are any aspiring authors watching this show, go find her if you need a cover artist. You will not be disappointed. Oh. I'm going to have to read every word and make sure everything is right. But I think this may very well be the, the approved version that goes out. So once, once I get through this, I'm going to have to sign it and ship it off to my first beta reader, who was an invaluable resource on how, on, on what worked and what didn't, and just really made a difference. So this, uh, so Nicole, this one is going out to you once I'm finished with it. Awesome. How does, I don't even remember what I was talking with you before that. I want to see your uh, font. How do you feel about the font in there and the, the typeface? Well, Did you, uh, you said you like a larger font on your uh, Kindle. Did you bump it up a bit for uh, yeah. well, easier this is, reading? This is very definitely readable. I mean, we had to, uh, we had to keep it reasonably sized because this weighs in at, I believe, 151,000 words. <laughs> and it's actually pretty lean <laughs> at 151,000 words. <laughs> So we, we couldn't get too crazy with the font size, but this is it's actually 11. very readable. 11.5? Yeah. Uh, yes, actually very readable to middle-aged eyes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm quite happy with this. And of course, I nitpicked endlessly over the cover. We went back and forth so many times and Thea was so patient with me and I sent endless emails repeating, this is brilliant. I love it. But can we just change this one? <laughs> you really have to strike a balance there. You, uh, you want to, yeah. I trust your artistic vision. Mm -hmm. I want you to do whatever you want uh -huh. to do, but also uh -huh. you have to be happy as well. Uh, well, she was so patient and so enthusiastic. It was really a joy to work with her. That's lovely. But, you know, I, I basically, I was demand as demanding with her as I am with myself. And that's the thing about covers is it's not just a piece of art. It is a description. It tells the reader what kind of experience they are going to have. And this book obviously is driven very much yeah. by the characters. So I wanted to to capture them and you know and and portray these little interesting things about them and i won't like shove it in the camera and dissect every little thing but book covers are really really very important because we do judge a book by its cover and we should judge a book by its cover because the cover is the message you send to readers this is the kind of experience you're going to have. This is why I think what I have done is worth 20 hours of your time. And this is what I have to tell you, you know, the cover and some teaser text on the back and whatnot. 
this is what I have chosen to tell you what this experience is going to be like so that you can decide if it's going to be to your taste or not. Mm -hmm. And so if I have, I have zero patience for authors <laughs> who think covers aren't important. I think and they're being I... lazy and they're disrespecting <laughs> readers. Marketing is convincing someone that you are worth their time. And that comes from this base attitude of people don't owe you attention. People don't owe you time. That, mm -hmm. that attention is a gift. Yes. Speaking of time, I've had you here for uh, an hour now, oh, just about. Well, it's been a lot of fun. It's, it has flown by. Yes. Um, and I feel like we just scratched the surface of uh, what it is you're reading these days. But uh, I should let you uh, yes. give everyone your website, uh, plug your book one more time, and then we'll wrap yeah. up here. That so tell us just... uh, again your book and your yeah. website. And... Yeah, yeah. That is just uh, www.devonerickson.com, D-E-V-O-N-E-R-I-K-S-E-N. -E -E and, and it will be in the show notes as well. Yes. So they can scroll and down and click on it. On there, you can find a sample of the first three chapters of my debut novel, Theft of Fire, to see if you enjoy it and you think it is worth your time. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on, Devin. Uh, yeah, thank you thanks for everyone for watching. Me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> it's, it's been great. Until next time, I'm always workshopping a new tagline to end the show on. So uh, let's go with uh, don't forget to charge your hollow books. <laughs> <laughs>